Hello, welcome. Thanks for watching us. Welcome to PAX 2020 online. My name is Mary and I have a pleasure and great honor to run this panel, which was prepared and created by two fantastic gentlemen. They are, of course, with me. Let's warmly welcome uh, these outstanding authors. I'd say authorities in this very field, this creative field of gaming, uh, Jeff Richard and David Larkins from Chaosium. Hi, guys. Hi, Mary. Hello. Okay, so um, let's start with the first question. Uh, I know I would be boring, maybe, because I'll start with the most obvious, yet the broadest and I think tricky question, which is, what is exact exactly a mythology? Because I need to uh, I need to remind you that we're on the panel uh, considering mythology in games, just to make sure everyone knows. So, what is mythology, Jeff? Well, so I use mythology, or for, for me, mythology is those magical or sacred stories just on the other side of conscious thought. Um, and it's the realm of archetypes and of, of Jung's collective unconsciousness. It is, it is that realm of stories that explain to us why we're here. Why do we die? Why are we born? What is, what, what, why does the cosmos work the way that it does. And it's something that it is how human beings understand the world around them. We, we are creatures of myth, not creatures of science and rational thought. And so to me, mythology is, it's, it's the foundation of almost every other creative um, endeavor and, and creative media, be it literature, be it music, be it art, it all ultimately boils down into our myths about ourselves. Okay. So that was, uh, that a was very, good. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, a very, very um, broad opinion, I, I'd say. Oh, well, and part of the reason that I have such a broad um, definition of it is when we get into the use of myth in gaming, we, we have to, to really keep in mind how much broader it is than, how that, than that, how that term is usually used. That's true. Absolutely. Um, you know, I, I, and I'm, I'm very much in the same camp as, as Jeff. You know, I, I take a broad approach when it comes to mythology and gaming. Uh, you know, to me, mythology is, uh, you know, the, the, the core elements of, of a dream world, but extrapolated on a broad base. So it's like a mimetic dream that's being shared by thousands or millions of people. So it's uh, something that people use to connect to each other. Uh, it's a shorthand, you know, uh, for understanding cultures, your own culture and other cultures as well. It's a way to link together by finding similarities between different mythologies. Uh, you know, Jeff, you mentioned Jung, uh, finding those common touch points that appear around the world in different human cultures, which obviously has applicability to gaming because we work with archetypes in games. And so mythology really is just the original way of breaking things down into archetypal explanations and uh, visions and, um, you know, sharing those amongst each other, amongst ourselves. Okay, uh, thanks for uh, for that. Um, 
actually, when we when we are discussing mythology, I'm I'm um, I'm thinking of another question that leads us to the inspiration. I mean, you actually just touched this topic, but. Uh, I have to ask, why? Why do the mythology serve as a great basis and inspiration when creating settings for games? Is this because of that archetypes uh, that you, David, mentioned? Uh, or is it because the fact that, uh, for example, a mythology is something that people accept and or believe without you know, any doubts, I think, right? Uh, even though some elements are unexplicable or illogical. And tools maybe it's easier to accept the rules of the newly created fantastic world. Or do you have other opinion, David? Well, um, I think that you know you don't necessarily have to accept a mythology in order to uh, work with that mythology. But uh, at the same time, I think that it does create a set of rules, whether you believe it or not. You know, and uh, mythology is not dogma, so you can you can. The, the fun thing about mythology is that you can play around with it. You can modify mm -hmm. a myth. You mm -hmm. can, you know, uh, change it to suit your own needs. Uh, you know, I'll, it, since the Arthurian mythos uh, is, is sort of my my thing right now, you know, uh, I'll, I'll just point that out as like a, a perfect example of, of these characters and stories changing over time to suit the societies that, that are telling them. So I think that that's, uh, that's why they are such a great basis, because it's, it's a collection of ideas that you can just take and you don't have to believe in them, but you can take them and work with them and then make them your own. All right. Jeff? I don't think that if, if there isn't a mythology in your setting, I don't think that we find it believable. Yeah. Uh, because as human beings... Uh, we ask the sort of questions that mythology provides answers or at least stories to. So, you know, uh, uh, David and I both work on really uh, in-your-face mythology-heavy settings like Glorantha or Pendragon. But, but another example would be World of Darkness. World of Darkness actually has a very well-constructed mythology for yes. it. And uh, so does um, uh, uh, another White Wolf or old White Wolf game, um, now Atlas, uh, Ars Magica. You know, these yep. are games where there is an, the setting is more believable because there are explanations for the sort of questions that your characters would have that are told in the manner that, that human beings actually tell them. So, you know, with World of Darkness, it's that, you know, you're a vampire and what's the, or where, where do vampires come from? Well, Cain, right? Um, mm -hmm. that's, that's, a that's mm -hmm. a founding myth. Well, why are we vampires? Well, cause you know, Cain, well, what happens to, you know, what is our purpose here, uh, on vampires? And there's, you know, there's that whole set of stories that make that, that, that ground that setting and give it the sort of mythology that makes something believable, even if it doesn't make a lot of sense, even if it's not believable, even if it's irrational. In fact, Arguably, it's more believable the more irrational it is. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, okay, David, do you want to add something? I, well, I, I feel that, that when uh, you are challenged by an irrationality or an illogical element of a myth, it is 
that is the beginning of the process of being illuminated by that myth uh, because it kind of cracks your head open, <laughs> you know, and, and, and gets yeah. you to look at things differently, right? Yeah, definitely. And this is uh, actually a good way to uh, move on to another question, but it's actually connected with uh, the previous one because you have uh, talked, you have mentioned uh, this, you know, open-mindedness and this change in a myth, right? And I, I'd like to um, uh, discuss the topic of this playing with myths. I mean, when creating a game, uh, is it easier to base it on a familiar example or is it better to think of something completely new? Uh, like, do you find all those familiar stories too limiting for you as the authors? Um, for example, Icarus has to lose his wings or does he not? Yeah, does the reversal of this familiarity is good for games, Make that makes them uh, fresh, unpredictable. What do you think, um, Jeff? Well, I we do, we've dealt with both. Um, so just to give uh, uh, the Pendragon game, we're dealing with the uh, core of Arthurian stories. So it's, you know, we're primarily relying on Mallory and various writers who wrote the, the core corpus of, of the Arthurian myths. On the other hand, Glorantha is uh, it's it's you know it's it's experimental myth making. There was there's no previously written master list of stories uh, about Glorantha. Greg made them up, and later I made up more of them, and and so it's an experimental one. I think both. I don't. I I, I think both are equally easy to work with as long as you have a feel for what are these stories trying to do? What are you trying to do with them? And then it doesn't particularly matter if you're dealing with um, the myths of Hesiod and Homer or of Mallory or of something that you're making up yourself. Um, the, only, the only advantage that real world mythology has is it means somebody else wrote it. And so there's <laughs> less for you to create on the fly. Yep, <laughs> definitely. And it David, is hard to write a yep. good myth. Yeah. yeah. David? Uh, yeah, I, you know, to, to just to add to that, I mean, uh, because myths deal in archetypes, a lot of the time you're, uh, you know, you're, you're just riffing on, on uh, some familiar elements uh, to begin with. Uh, or you can always put interesting spins on existing uh, myths. You know, Icarus losing his wings could be recontextualized in a modern way you know, as a sci-fi story, you know, for example, mm -hmm. uh, right. So, um, I think it has been, wasn't that, wasn't that one of the vignettes in Brazil? Yes, it was actually. Thank you. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. So, uh, yeah, that was the core, core imagery in Brazil. Actually. Exactly. So, yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, it, it's, uh, I view it as not a, um, not something I have, you have to fight against, but rather something that, that helps you to actually, be more creative because you i love riffing off of things anyway so give give me you know uh sort of a, a core myth and say go to town and and see what you can come up with that puts an original spin on this that to me can be more fun or as much fun as coming up with an original myth uh do you actually uh, know uh or do you have any favorite um uh, rpg scenario based on the myth or Created on the basis of the myth, but in a completely, you know, reversal way. Do you have any 
David? Uh, I mean, you know, to to take things back to, well, I mean, Jeff actually mentioned uh, World of Darkness, which I think is a great example of that, where you're you're taking the biblical, uh, you know, stories of Genesis and, and recontextualizing them in this very, uh, you know, dark and horrific way. Uh, so that, that would have to be one of them for me. But but also just within uh, Pendragon, you know, you can do so much with uh, just the material that's in the Great Pendragon campaign, for example. Uh, you, uh, so Merlin would be, you know, one of my favorites where Merlin can be this benevolent tutor or he can be this adversary. And it's always very interesting to me to see how players recontextualize myths at the table. Uh, that's that's a continuing source of, of entertainment to me, you know, because I might run Pendragon for one group and they hate Merlin with a passion. And then in the other group, Merlin's their greatest ally. All right. Jeff? Well, I mean, my my favorite is is always uh, Glorantha because it's set up that each of the cultures, all, all of the cultures share a, a common set of myths, the, the Glorantha monomyth, but they all every group interprets what they mean and puts weight on them uh, differently. So, you know, you have uh, like, uh, like your character is a good uh, follower of Orlanth, Mary, but there are other cultures that accept <laughs> all of or- the same stories that you have and conclude Orlanth is a very bad and evil God. And, and, uh, you know, I, to me, that's also the sign that you've got a good set of mythology in because it's possible for different groups to look at that same core story and come up with radically different meanings as to what that that means. And, and, and it, it kind of ties also into a thought that I was having that mythology tends to be very personal, right? Mm-hmm. We, mm-hmm. you, and which makes it great for gaming. Because it tends to be something that you, your character, um, experience and, and, and use to understand the world around them. But it's different from a religion, which is a set of big rules that everybody um, is supposed to have more or less, or at least in a written religion with a theology, it's suppo- it, we're all supposed to have the same understanding what the meaning of this is. But with a... With a um, a lot of mythology, these are stories that are left for you to understand what they mean to you. Mm-hmm. Okay. Considering Glorantha, I will definitely um, elaborate on that and ask you questions about Glorantha. But uh, now I'd like to uh, make a step back to what David said, because he said something very, very interesting um, among others about this mythology and myths um, when, in case of scenarios, right? And I'd mm. like to just ask you a, a short question. Uh, did you... Did you ever actually have uh, such a feeling or such a situation when running a game, you were running a scenario based on a particular myth, for example, Pendragon, and your players knew that it's this very particular myth, right? Uh, Mm And this very basis. Did you have such situation? What did you do if, if, if you did, David? So that's one of, uh, one of the great, hidden strengths of uh, Pendragon or Glorantha is the ability to uh, put your players into directly into the myth, either explicitly or 
as an echo like a hero quest right uh so in pendragon you can have a hero quest so to speak <laughs> you know in its own way uh one of the things i have done here and there i don't you know not too much but here and there is if i see an opportunity to take a player character from my group and put them into one of the existing arthurian stories in the place of the protagonist or even the antagonist uh i will do so so like in a, in a campaign i ran uh one of the knights had been had fallen under the influence of morgan Le Fay and had become her lover and she uh manipulated him and basically i put him in in a place if you're familiar there's a there's a story from mallory that uh john steinbeck actually did a, a reimagining of or re re you know, a modern reinterpretation of uh, Sir Acalon, you know, being given Excalibur, which, which uh, Morgan had stolen and uh, sent to kill Arthur. And so I just took, I, I talked to the player beforehand. I said, are you comfortable with this kind of situation? Like, you know, you, you're probably going to get killed. Uh, you know, this will be the end of that character, you know, because that's kind of how it turns out, you know, and, and he was all for it. He, he thought that was a great end to that character's story. So we, we played through it and uh, the rest of the group watched, you know, biting their nails the whole time because there's this night, you know, this guy that he's known for years and he's fighting. He's trying to kill Arthur. What's going on? You know, so it was it, it made it took this, you know, this depersonalized story and made it very personal for the group. Yeah, great. Fantastic. I mean, creati creativity of the players, it's outstanding, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Isn't it? Exactly. Jeff, do you have, uh, did you have uh, some similar, similar Oh, well, <laughs> yeah, I think David's, David's even played in a couple of those. Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> one of the fun things in Glorantha is, is that you can have something where you, 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 you've, the players know or you've told them, you know, this yeah. is a myth of your particular culture you need to try to reenact it in, yeah. in real. Um, and this is a, a, a hero quest. And we'll get to that eventually in our group where you're in a course, nothing ever works the way it does in the stories. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, there's always um, this, the, the stories only tell part of this or you, you screw it up. And you watch as the players try to figure out what's the important parts of the story. How do we get the story back on track so that we can we can um, go through and carry out this myth and and uh, release its magic or gain its magic or do whatever it's you know for whatever per whatever the purpose of the story is. Um, but we've got you know we've got kind of this guidelines of this story. But now we have to start winging it because we've already screwed it up because we're players, and and and, love and they're bringing their own <laughs> and they're bringing their own baggage to it too. They have their own agenda, you know. Yeah. Exactly, and I love that, and especially when they complete it because they've now remade that story and they've made it their own, and yes. and I love that. I I love that experience, and 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 players usually have a complete blast out of that because they feel that they've done something. Uh, significant, important, yep. yeah, and yeah. and this is this is this is the fun of playing around with mythology. Yeah, and actually, and giving the choice to players, right, and giving everything to players' hands. This is fantastic. They can do everything and just you know uh, write the history uh, as the new. 
One of the things that's interesting, though, is, is that a lot of these myths, a lot of these stories have um, a common set of core archetypes and core events, and they follow a structure that even mm-hmm. when the players take it and make it their own, it still ends up often retelling that story perhaps differently, but it gets the basic beats. And it's not that you've told them to do this. It's that mm-hmm. this is part of how we tell stories. And it's another thing that I've, I, I just kind of find magical when, it, when you, you, you're able to pull it off in a game. Yeah. Okay. Okay, fine. Uh, David, you want to add something or you guys want to elaborate on that topic more? Uh, I'll just add that it, it is remarkable to me how often that, that happens where uh, players uh, sometimes inadvertently without realizing it play out, you know, story beats from, you know, particular myth, you know, how often in my Pendragon games uh, I don't play, I don't try to make Guinevere into a, a, you know, an antagonist or a bad person, but how often the player knights end up citing against her you know, and, and seeing her as the problem, you know, it's, it's fascinating to me because it's just like, wow, okay, that's, that's the archetype, you know, is that she's, she's kind of, you know, a victim of the system and, and misunderstood, I think, you know, I find her a very sympathetic character actually, but you know, it's, they, they end up, right. It's it's crazy. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm not trying to make them hate her, but there you go. (laughs) So yeah, it's, it's, it's fascinating. Okay, uh, thanks. Uh, that was very broad. Um, okay, so I think let's move to uh, my favorite Gloranta. I mean, I'm smiling and I, I'm happy because I uh, just to um, make sure our audience is uh, on the same page. I'm playing a campaign with Jeff right now. Um, I mean, uh, th- this month and since actually March, since epidemic uh, and we're playing Glorantha and actually because um, this is the Bronze Age right and uh, I, I just want to ask you a question about uh, the the old systems as um, compared to the modern world right so you're veterans of the market and the industry right and you know that um, I mean Glorantha and there were another old system, old setting based on mythology. Uh, I mean, the Barker's Empire of the Petal Throne. Mm-hmm. And it was actually published in the 1970s. Um, and there's Tecumel, right, which is, the, uh, which is the world there. And it was influenced by Indian, Middle Eastern, Egyptian mythology. And if today someone was to uh, create another one setting, a new game, should it be based on the same mythologies, right, like those Egyptians or Indian, Indian or even Bronze Age? Uh, how do you feel when talking about trends? Would it be a success nowadays, or should we like create um, games based on on any other various mythologies, right? like like Vikings or something? What do you think? Oh man, I would love to see uh, Tecumel get the attention that it deserves. I mean, it's a fantastic setting, but I think. And I'm just jumping into this first because, and I, as the creative director, I, I, this is this is part of my job is to think about it. And I don't, I think with with um, mythology itself, it doesn't really matter where you start for start from. I, I can say mm-hmm. some things that I think probably um, have been done to death, 
which is mm-hmm. mythology based on the archetypes of gaming as an artifice of gaming. I think that's been done to death. But uh, um, uh, mythology that's been done that, that where you're trying to play around with um, what are the, the, the human questions about the great mysteries of your setting? I think that's always fresh. I mean, things I would love to, I totally dig seeing. I would love to see something based on Navajo mythology. Would absolutely mm-hmm. love to see that. I would love to see um, people play around more with, with Slavic mythology. I think that's very underused in, um, uh, in, in the West. I, I would love to see, uh, I, I, I would love to also see people play around more with um, um, Central Asian and Iranian mythology. Like um, uh, there, if anybody's familiar with the Shanameh, the, um, the, the Fedosi's uh, great book of Persian history, uh, wow. which, wow. yeah, was written, I think, 8th or 9th century. Uh, mm-hmm. a me, you know, it, 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 and it, it, it has a history of the world from the beginning, um, to, you know, the secret history of Alexander the Great and all that. I would love to see stuff on this. But, it's a nice setting. Oh yeah. It would be yeah, awesome. Really nice <laughs> but, one. But the, the thing I think is, is that if you do a mythology where you've really approached the questions and, and these stories sincerely and seriously, and that doesn't, by serious, I don't mean, you know, without a sense of humor, but where you're taking it, where you know it's an important part of your setting, I think it will mm-hmm. always be good. Because we always want to hear myths. We want stories. And, and for me, when I'm, I'm looking at a setting, if it doesn't have a well-thought-out or well-constructed mythology of the setting, I'm not interested in it. Okay. David? Yeah, I, I would I would just echo that. I would say if you're if you're playing a setting, if you're playing in a game where you're making a character and it comes to the part where you have to fill in who your patron deity is or what, you know, what belief system you follow and you can just leave that blank and and it doesn't affect the game one way or another, then that's you're losing a lot. You know, like you need to start from what does my character believe? How was my character raised? What are their belief systems? And and yeah, you can definitely tell when a setting skimps on that, you know. But uh, as far as like basing new mythologies off of things, I mean, Jeff has already indicated how many untapped, rich veins of mythology there are just in hu- you know our own you know global cultures. That uh, I mean, one of the things that makes Techumel so brilliant is that it does mix up these different you know. Uh, you know, Indian, Hindu, you know, uh, Middle Eastern, Egyptian, like you said, you know, mythologies all into this, you know, new vision that Glorantha does the same thing. You know, it's like, wow, this is familiar and yet new. Uh, So, you know, that's, you know, although we're working with archetypes, you want to find a balance between being too familiar or being too surface level, too superficial, uh, while also you know, giving people something they haven't seen before. Okay. Um, all right. But to be honest, honest. Oh, okay. You want to say oh, something, I wanted to Jeff? bounce on. into this. Some, one of the things I'm a, I, a big fan, uh, fan of is syncretism, which is basically where you take different cultures and different beliefs and, and 
where they're communicating together to create a, a even more complex mythology or, or pantheon. And one of my favorite real world examples of this is the, the Silk Road during the period of the Greek empires. So one of my favorite little stories is in Togo of Christianity, the most widely dispersed cult on, on earth was that of Heracles. And mm-hmm. Heracles was, mm-hmm. was a, a patron god or guardian from the pillars of Gibraltar all the way to Buddhist temples in Japan, whereas Nio, he still graces. There, there are still statues of Heracles guarding the Buddha in uh, Japanese Buddhist temples. Yeah. Uh, and, and where in uh, early Buddhism, if you look at any of the, the art from the Indo-Greek period, so second century BC, approximately, you'll see Buddha meditating, and there's a guy with a beard and a big club at his side, and that's that's Buddha's buddy Heracles, and and this is this is the mytho- <laughs> this is the stuff I love to see in gaming because this is actually how human beings operate. They mm-hmm. they 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 don't do these enclosed, um, hermetically sealed pantheons. But you end up with, you know, Buddha hanging out with Indra and Heracles because they're great pals. Or, or uh, the, the Greek saying that, you know, the Egyptians actually know all the real secrets about the gods because that's where all the gods used to, to, to hang out and, and told everybody everything. And this is a stuff that I would love to see way more of in gaming. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I I think same same here actually, <laughs> but uh, you just want to see you just want to see Heracles and Buddha, you know, buddy a buddy <laughs> team, don't you? <laughs> to be honest, to, the truth to be told, yeah. But uh, actually, I I have to admit that uh, when you said uh, Slavic um, mythology, I would love to 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 see more uh, of games to play more of games that are actually based on that. Actually, in Poland right now we have um, uh, a new system. It's called Słowianie Grafabularna, which is Slavic uh, role-playing game. Uh, mm. And yeah, it's it's getting more and more popular. But um, to be honest, actually, I think, and uh, prove me if I'm wrong, uh, I'd like to hear your opinion on the topic. Um, actually, the most uh, popular is this Norse Scandinavian uh, mythology. It dominates actually the pop culture, right? So including gaming um, uh, market and, and games and, and, and so, you know, the entertainment. Um, it's a fantasy trend, actually, I think. Or maybe not. Do you have another opinion? Or uh, why you think is, is that? So, well, I, I, You are absolutely right, Mary. I mean, um, Norse yeah. mythology, Norse mythology hit, I, I think it hit a number of critical buttons start going back to the late 60s and 70s yeah. and just caught on. And, you know, some of this is comic books. You know, Thor, Thor is a pop culture I- um, icon in the United States. Part mm-hmm. of it is neo-paganism. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you see an awful lot. Uh, 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 I think um, uh, Norse paganism and the symbol of Mjolnir, the, the Thor's hammer is a, a popular thing. Um, but also part of it is it's Vikings. You know, yeah. Vikings are like pirates <laughs> plus barbarians. What could be cooler <laughs> yeah. than that? And yeah. the irony is... We actually know more about Slavic paganism than we do actually know about Norse paganism. 
most of the stories that we 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 tell about Norse beliefs weren't written by people that had any contact with the the people that believed this, and where which is something I find is a just a bizarre and maybe that's part of the reason it's so popular is mm. that the, these stories were written for a different audience. You know, most of the most of the the, the better known Norse myths were written by Snorri Sturluson in the thirteenth mm-hmm. fourteenth century, so mm-hmm. centuries after Iceland was Christianized, yeah. uh, and 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 as a result, they were told differently, and I think that made it easier to understand. Whereas the the Slavic myths that we know, because you know, you still had um, elements of Slavic paganism much later. Than, than Norse, they're weirder to yeah. a, a westernized audience. They're just harder to, yeah. to access. And also, I think part of it is also that, that um, because uh, the Norse language had a big impact on English. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Those, yeah. those you, know, you know, we call it, um, you know, we have Thor's Day in the English language. It's, there's, um, an, it's, easier for for us English speakers to grasp these names. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's also a big part of why it, it became so popular. Yeah, that's per point. Yeah. David? Yeah, I was think? thinking I was thinking of the same thing. You know, there's a there's a cultural I mean we we put Christmas trees up in our houses, you know, because of because of that yeah. Teutonic and, and Norse paganism yeah. influence, you know, on our on our cultural heritage. Um I think also there's, as Jeff said, you know, this is something that has only become popular, like, you know, in in its current form in the last couple generations, where I think, you know, you have other myth cycles that are either completely unfamiliar to most American uh, and, and, you know, British audiences like Slavic myths, which, you know, we also don't have as much information on just in general. Uh, but, and, you know, on the other hand, you have like the Greco-Roman myths, which I think are perceived as maybe kind of belonging to 19th century Victorian romanticism. Mm-hmm. You know, they're kind of a little stale, you know, it's like, oh yeah, we all know that. And people are still discovering, you know, people are still picking up uh, the sagas and reading them for the first time and going, these are awesome, you know, because it just doesn't, it's it's popular, but it doesn't have that level of saturation that uh, Zeus and Apollo have, you know. Well, and if, if you don't mind me jumping in on this one, yeah, because on. as a corollary to this, I love the Greek myths. I love it. Absolutely. I oh, love yeah. Homer. Yeah. I, I, um, but the way that those myths got received into our popular culture, certainly in the English speaking world, is mm-hmm. through um, proper Victorian gentlemen who took mm. all of the sexiness away. They took, yes. you know, these are stories of sex and murder and, yeah. um, you know, gods that are complete bastards because it explains a, uh, an important thing about uh, about the world, which is the gods aren't looking out for your best interest. The world is a dangerous and hostile place, which is why you really need to be sucking up to the gods because yeah. uh, left to their own devices, they're just going to make your life a total living hell. And you know, you read the 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 original stories, and they're awesome. You know, it's one of the things that I've I've always noticed in the the the, the you know one of the most interesting Greek gods for me was Dionysus. 
right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, the culture bringer, the god of intoxication, the you know, incredibly important, and usually bottlerized out of the Victorian early twentieth century retellings of it, because you know it, his cult is basically sex, drugs, and rock and roll, and that's mm-hmm. not very appealing to Victorian gentlemen. Yeah, and <laughs> and as a result, you have this great myth- mythology that we that we've managed to turn into something boring and stale. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, um, something uh, very interesting uh, about this Greek and Roman mythology, because uh, when I was a kid and probably as you were also, I was um, taught at school that Greek and Roman mythologies are religions. And in case of Vikings, for example, it was always told, I was always told that it's magic, it's mythology. It's not Mm. uh, like the same, right? Mm. And it was uh, something very interesting because, I mean, interesting and um, kind of irritating also. uh, Because, yeah, I was told that Greeks and Romans have uh, have their religion and Vikings didn't, right? Don't. They have just mythology. And uh, what's your opinion on that? I mean, you were, uh, because, yeah, we are, uh, we we're all uh, different countries, but um, what 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 is your actually impression on that? Did you have the same at school, David? Well, I, you know, at school, I don't think we even covered Norse mythology. Uh, you know, if if we uh-huh. if if I did, it was probably independent learning in the library during during reading time. You know, like finding books on the shelves and reading up on it. You know, we definitely covered Greek and Roman beliefs and mythologies. Um, so yeah, there, there, I think you're absolutely right. There is a, almost like a hierarchy of res- like which mythologies are more legitimate, you know? Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I agree. Jeff? I got them both from Bullfinch's mythology when I was a kid. If anybody remembers the, the, the old Bullfinch mythology and then, yeah, I have a when, copy on my shelf. When I, was, <laughs> when I was a kid, that was when, um, in pop culture, uh, there was a comic book writer, Walt Simonson, who did the Thor Ragnarok series, which was a retelling of the Ragnarok myth uh, with the Thor, you know, Marvel's long-haired Thor action figure character. And mm-hmm. and so I, it, at the time, I was like, wow, this stuff is so awesome, so exciting. But I think that 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 was just a, a lucky bit of of coming to age at that time. Yeah. Uh, but both, you know, both are religions, or or yeah. or or you could say neither are because neither the Greeks nor the Romans nor the Norse had a core set of texts that said this is what you need. This is this is what being a Norseman is all about. Here, it's all in this handy book. Or yeah, yeah. The Greeks and the, Ro- the, the the Romans just collected gods, you know, that um, we've defeated this city. They even had a ceremony that when they defeated another people, they would bring that god into Rome because that's where that god belonged. And, and so yeah. they had a mm-hmm. unbelievably diverse pantheon that included, um, you know, a black rock, Kibela, uh, the, 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 the great mother Bacchus and Dionysus, and 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 uh, like most polytheistic people, they were able to embrace contradictions. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and the Norse were were likely the same. 
Yeah, and um, I'd like to stop uh, a bit with these pantheons and uh, this religion comparison to mythology, uh, because our world is dominated by uh, monotheistic um, religions, right? And in games, actually, uh, we tend to create pantheons. So more popular are those uh, polytheistic religions. Why is that? Is that, you know, because of m giving more possibilities to uh, character to, to the characters for players, David? Uh, I think that's definitely a part of it. You know, this is something that comes up in Pendragon a lot because being set in a real world context, you know, the, mytholo the mythologies, the belief systems, the, the religious cultures that these characters are coming from, uh, all, of the, all of the original Arthurian stories are... Christian, you know, they are they are based in a Christian context. And so in the game, you can play a Christian knight or you can play a pagan knight. And, you know, I'm sure it varies table to table. But in my personal experience of running Pendragon, I'd say it's about a, at least 50-50 split, if not maybe even favoring uh, playing pagan knights versus playing Christian knights because there is baggage <laughs> you know with with christianity with monotheism these are current belief systems that impact people's daily lives people grew up in christian households you know so by putting yourself into a different context especially if you are not as familiar with pagan beliefs or you are creating a new polytheistic pantheon um it's something that is coming in without any baggage, you know. All right, Jeff. I've actually I've been putting a lot of thought into that question. I think that the, we've we've got this weird convergence of two things going on. Mm -hmm. um, there are a lot of I mean there are uh, I I know a fair number of very devoutly Christian or Muslim gamers uh, as Absolutely. well. And yeah. they generally are reluctant to play around with their own religion in a fantasy setting. It's, it's yes. uncomfortable because mm -hmm. it's sacred. These stories yes. are, are sacred to them, and it's inappropriate for them to be treating them as, as a fictional thing. And it can make people very uncomfortable. So, yeah, when I when I when I say baggage, I didn't mean that necessarily negatively, right? right. It's just like there's there's a lot of weight. There's a lot of because weight on the, that. The, you know, these are yeah. these are sacred stories. So so a exactly. lot of yeah. a lot of um, monotheistic writers and game designers tend to go for something that is very unlike their personal religious beliefs because yeah. that gives them the room to be able to explore and and play around with it without um, you know being uncomfortable. The mm -hmm. flip side. There's an awful lot of people in the creative community that have had bad experiences with monotheistic religions. If you grew up in, mm -hmm. you know, if you're of my age and a gamer, you can remember the days when the moral majority tried to shut down gaming. Um, you know, you can remember when D&D &D was forced to get rid of demons and devils because that might cause people to become devil worshippers. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, and, and, and there's an understandable reaction against that. They're done that, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and you know, with a, a, an awful lot of LGBT players, there's, there's also problems and difficulties that they've personally experienced because of, of the social beliefs of one denomination or another of a monotheistic faith. And so, you know, if for a lot of people out of the creative community, uh, monotheism isn't appealing because it has other sorts of baggage. 
for them. So it's basically, there's nobody where that's in that narrow space of wanting to play around with it. That being said, there are a number of fantastic RPG settings that do have a strong monotheistic um, theme to it. One, Pendragon is right, you know, as the world is moving from uh, polytheistic paganism to uh, Christianity. And that's certainly mm-hmm. going on within the setting. But World mm-hmm. of Darkness mm-hmm. is is mm-hmm. a monotheist. I mean, at the end of the day, there's a cane. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Ars Magica as well. That Ars Magica has a well-defined, there is a, a heavenly realm and an infernal realm. And in between, there's the realm of fairy. There's a lot of settings that have played around with this uh, and played around with it very well, but they're greatly outnumbered by either uh, polytheism or kind of a weird pantheon, um, pantheonism. So, yeah. Anyways, that's my, my convoluted answer. All right. Thank you. Uh, David, you want to add something more? Sorry, um, it's my well, cat. Okay. You. Oh, no. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> no worries. Well, I would just add, uh, you know, to your question of, of why do we see so many uh, games choose to go with polytheistic? Because certainly you could create your own original monotheistic religion uh, just as well as you could create a polytheistic religion. And I, and I think, you know, the simple answer there is it's, it's maybe more fun for the creator to come up with, yeah. you know, 20 different gods and, you know, each one has a different personality and, you know, the worshipers differ in this way and that way. So, you know, that, that would be the other answer. That would be the more practical answer, I suppose. It's just, it's more fun. <laughs> well, so. and, 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 and yeah, if you grow, grew up on stories of Norse or Greek yeah. or Roman mythology, then, you know, the idea of coming up with your own group of gods, that's that's cool. And it maps, again, when we talk about, we talked about archetypes early on, it's easier mm-hmm. to map um, a diverse bunch of deities onto yeah. archetypes than a single god. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And yeah, it gives more possibilities, um, possibilities for the players, right? And it's sexier to uh, choose which one, which god I, I want to, you know, follow and so on. I think, yeah, as, mm-hmm. as the player, uh, it was always one of my interesting, uh, the most, uh, like, um, I was always interested in, uh, you know, uh, riffling through the uh, chapter with deities and religion. Yeah. Mm. Um, all right, thanks. And now I want to know <laughs> your very honest opinion. Which mythology sells best and why, Jeff? Okay, like in best. gaming, of course. In game, wh- yeah. which real world mythology? Yeah, which real uh, exactly? Like you know, when when you're basing your um, RPG system on um, particular mythology, like Vikings, which mythology is best to sell? Which is you know eye catching and sexy for the players and the audience. I think the religion that's got the broadest audience awareness is Norse mythology. That being said, I don't mm-hmm. necessarily think that it would be the best if I wanted to come up with a, a real world mythology to, to base my setting on. I'm not sure that would actually be the best selling one because there's so many people have done so much with it. There mm-hmm. are, there, they, you know, we have so many um, good and bad adaptations of Norse mythology out there. Um, I actually, if, if I really, uh, you know, it, I'd actually say Near Eastern um, or 
I mean, I would totally love to have something that was based on on Babylonian and Sumerian with Marduk and Inanna right at the right at that period of the of the Bronze Age when you you still have the with the myths. Most of your audience don't know it very well, but they are very very vivid. I mean, I I think that could do really well. Mm-hmm. I don't know what you think there, David. Um, yeah, I, 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 I agree. I think we're at a, we're at an interesting crossroads right now where I think, uh, for a long time, it was probably Norse mythology. You know, you, you, you slap Odin or Thor on the cover and, you know, you've got a, you've got a good product that people are going to check out. But I think, I think there is a shift going on where people want to see some new things. One one thing I, I keep seeing coming up is people talking about something based on the romance of the three kingdoms. You know, people want to see more stuff from like Chinese uh, legends and mythology, you know, and, you know, my own personal, um, one of my own personal loves and, you know, we touched on it already, but would be to see more uh, Slavic influence fantasy mm-hmm. because it's, it's so rich. It's just so rich, yeah. you know, so um, there's a lot of opportunities right now, I think, actually, you know. I'll, t- I'll tell you what, and I was just thinking about that, what I totally dig to do as well mm-hmm. would be something comparable to American gods. You know, where are yeah. the gods mm-hmm. of mythology mm-hmm. now? Mm-hmm. Of, of course, that gets us to Nephilim very quickly, so. Yes, yes. yes. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting, yeah, in- interesting. Uh, but do you think Slavic, right? Uh, David, do you think, mm-hmm. do you predict maybe that uh, it, it does it have a chance to be another top of the top after the Vikings and Norse mythology, as we said, and we agreed that it's the most popular? Is Slavic something that might be next uh, next trend in popular culture? Do you think? I certainly hope so. I, I think it's it's really just kind of getting it in front of people so they can see how cool it is, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is, yeah. I mean, that's even something with with the Arthurian mythology because. Uh, unfortunately, for a long time now, uh, the last 40 years or so, uh, you know, our our visual media have failed us in terms of producing something really compelling with Arthurian stories. And I, it, I'm tearing my hair out on a con- consistent basis because I'm like, it's right there. Just do a ad- direct adaptation of Chrétien de Troyes. You know, like you you don't have to do a reinvention or a reimagining. Just put it out there. You know, and and it's kind of a similar thing with Slavic mythology, where it's just familiarizing people with these stories that have always been there, you know. Look at the popularity of The Witcher. Mm-hmm. I mean, The Witcher has yeah. done yeah. a really yes. good job yeah. introducing uh, this to a broader audience. So I absolutely, I, I absolutely think that it is one that's got a chance of being um, increasingly popular in, the, uh, in Western Europe and the United States. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I hope so. I hope so because it's you know <laughs> it's my country, so I'm very proud of the <laughs> team, yeah, and the other and uh, CD Project Red. Uh, it, I I really hope to to see a Slavic uh, RPG also uh, somewhere on the world market, not only in Poland, mm, yeah. but um, it, because apart from you know the predictions of the market trends and so on, uh, I just want to at the end ask you about your preferences, like. Which mythology? I know Pendragon, David. Yeah, sure. <laughs> I, I think so. Yeah, but which mythology is uh, you like the most? Which is the most inspiring for you uh, for w- when writing games, David? Is it Pendragon and 
the Arthurian? <laughs> well, I mean, you know, it can be. Uh, it can be, certainly when I'm working on Pendragon. <laughs> uh, but, you know, honestly, and, and Jeff's ta- touched on this by talking about World of Darkness, I think, I think one of the things that um, really deserves broader recognition, I think, in our, in our popular culture is all the work that game creators put into their own games mythologies. And I, I love reading other games, uh, you know, mythological treatments, whether it's based in something from the real world or something completely made up. You know, uh, Mary, you said, like, you always go right to the, the deities chapter of a, of a book, uh, you know, yeah. I'm the yeah. same way. You know, I love seeing what other people are coming up with because this is really kind of uh, a ferment going on, you know, uh, ever since gaming got started of people just really going to town and riffing on, on new ideas, new approaches to mythology. So uh, it's, it's important not to get too self-referential within uh, gaming tropes and, and, you know, like certain, uh, uh, you know, certain ideas have been done to death, certainly. But, um, you know, I get a lot of inspiration out of reading other games and other treatments of mythology. Okay, thanks, Jeff. What about you? Well, uh, there's there's three mythological texts that I tend to go back to over and over again. One is the Mahabharata of uh, Vedic early Hindu uh, mythology. This is the the, uh, Iliad on steroids, um, many times as big, and it is uh, an, an amazing story, but it's also this, this amazing collection of myths. Um, uh, and sometimes it, diver- it sometimes it's very mundane, and then sometimes it diverges into weird philosophical discussions between characters about the nature of the cosmos. Uh, wonderful, uh, you know, something that every game designer ought to have read. The other yeah. one every game designer ought to have read is the Iliad. Yep. Ah, uh, of course, definitely. Yeah. Uh, um, uh, absolutely. But the other one that I would throw in—that's my the third one into it—is um, the story of Anana and the seven gates. And this is the story of how Anana, the queen of heaven, descended into the underworld in order to tell off her sister. Uh, only to discover, only to realize that she had shred all of her garments of power and was now naked and dead before her sister, who is the queen of the dead, and was really screwed. And so (laughs) I had to figure out a a clever way of getting herself out. So she said, well, don't, don't torture me in the underworld. I've got a lover up above. You can have him. But it's a wonderful good it's deal. A, yeah, it, <laughs> but it's a wonderful story about um, you know it's an older version of that that Persephone and Hades story about the the descent into death. Why is that? Why are there seasons? Why you know why does fertility go away? Why do we die? And and these are stories that I go back to all the time as a writer. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, sounds interesting, Ooh. definitely. Yeah, yeah, go on. <laughs> yeah, that, that story and Babylonian mythology in general really informed my work in uh, Berlin, the Wicked City, one scenario in particular, mm-hmm. which you know, Jeff. Um, and then I don't... Basically a total riff off that. Thank you. And, uh, and then I would just also add, uh, when, you, when you brought up Inanna, it just reminded me of uh, the Nihongi, which is the Japanese Chronicles, uh, which is uh, their collection of, of origin myths and, and also the early history of uh, their emperors and stuff. Some great stories in there in terms of 
you know, how the sun and the moon came to be, how death came to be, uh, and just, and funny. There's, there's humor mm-hmm. in these stories that it's laugh out loud at times, you know. And I'm actually going to, let me throw a, 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 a shout out to one other collection of it, which is mm-hmm. underused. The, the Old Testament, the, the Torah is mm-hmm. an incredible, I mean, it, it, it is an incredible source of mythic stories, you know, particularly those first five books. And especially if you read them and imagine it's Johnny Cash um, uh, re- uh, is telling them out because, you know, you look at World of Darkness, that's what World of Darkness riffs off. That's what yeah. um, Ars yeah. Magica, there, there, there is um, a power to those stories as well. And as a writer, if you're developing mythology, you know, it's, it's certainly one to be familiar with because absolutely so much of our secondary sources have been influenced by it. Mm-hmm. Great. I mean, thanks. I have so many positions to read and to reach for. Thank you for the inspirations and uh, for the, you know, amount of knowledge I, I got here. Uh, okay, gentlemen, thank you very, very much for this great discussion. I learned so much. And it was a pleasure to have you here. Thank you, our audience, uh, for watching us and spending this time with us. Uh, it was Jeff Richard and David Larkins from Chaosium. Thank you very much. Thank you. This was great. And me, Mary. Thank you very much. Uh, watch online PAX 2020. Thank you for watching. And goodbye. Hey, everybody. Before we wrap up this episode, I'd like to take a minute to say thank you for tuning in. We hope you're enjoying the podcast from our interviews and actual plays to our rambling roundtable discussions. If you like what you're here and you'd like to support the show, we have great sponsors for you to check out. Birds of a Feather Coffee Company is a small batch craft coffee roaster and is our OG sponsor. There are three signature blends to choose from. The Morning Lark, which is a light roast. The Night Owl Blend, which is a rich dark roast. And the Hummingbird Decaf Blend. They also have the exclusive Legendary Brew, a nice medium roast coffee, perfect fuel for all those late night gaming sessions. If you use the code LEGENDS10, you'll get 10% off your order, and shipping is always free. Thanks everybody for checking it out. We'll catch you next time. This podcast is a proud member of the Legends of Tabletop broadcast network. For more gaming-related content, please visit www.legendsoftabletop.com.